Wrestling fans, and welcome to Shut Up and Wrestle, an old school wrestling podcast about good conversations and great stories. I am your host, Brian R. Solomon, and welcome to episode 33. My guest this week is former chief WWF photographer Tom Buchanan, another former co-worker of mine, I will get to that fantastic conversation in just a few minutes. Wanted to make mention of these things. First of all, want to say there's been a, there was a great response to uh, last week's episode where I spoke with Ross Hart. The Ross Hart interview. I I really enjoyed talking to Ross. Like I said, he's got an encyclopedic knowledge of the business, especially his family's business and what a famous wrestling family it is. So I'm glad everybody enjoyed that one. I think you're going to love this week's episode as well. Uh, I want to let the cat out of the bag on a little thing here that I've been sort of trying to keep under my hat in specific detail, but it's sort of gotten out of the bag uh, thanks to uh, a mention on someone else's uh, podcast recently, uh, that being Vince Russo actually mentioned this on his show because this is a project he's been interviewed for and I've been interviewed for as well. So uh, the show that I've been mentioning that I uh, took part in where I was brought down to Brooklyn, New York, to the studios of Vice TV to be interviewed, it is a documentary on Vince McMahon that Vice TV is putting together. It's it's not part of Dark Side of the Ring, but it is affiliated with Vice, and it's being produced by a different company. It's part of the news division for Vice. And I do believe that some of the footage from Dark Side of the Ring that is related to Vince McMahon will be used. But um, I was interviewed for this thing at length, spoke to them for hours. So we'll see. Hopefully they use some of that from just my experiences working for the McMahons and even just my own research on the McMahon family and wrestling history. Um, I'm I'm going to be part of that. As I said, Vince Russo was interviewed for it. He's the one who mentioned it on his show. So I figured it's not much of a secret now. I might as well mention it myself. I know that the, a few other uh, good people are going to be on that show, including Dave Meltzer, Chris Jericho, Brian Alvarez, people like that have been interviewed. I don't know much more about it other than that it's coming out, I believe, in late October. It'll be premiering after the debut of the of the Tales from the Territories show on Vice TV that we're all looking forward to. I know I am. Anyway, um, I I know about as much about this documentary as you guys do. Speaking about the, the Vince documentary, all I know is that they interviewed me for it. So we'll see how it turns out. We'll see what it's like, and I'm sure it sh it'll be really interesting. Hopefully they actually include any of the footage that they took of me. We'll see. Uh, we'll see. So stay tuned. Also want to mention that uh, I will be at the Cauliflower Alley Club reunion a little bit later this month. Actually, it's about it'll be about um, two weeks after this episode airs, uh, specifically um, Monday, the 
5th, I believe it is, through Wednesday the 27th. Yeah, uh, I'm sorry, make that Monday the 26th through Wednesday the 28th. That's when the festivities take place at CAC. If you are a member and you're going, I look forward to seeing you. If you're if you're not a member, I encourage you to join and come on down. Uh, it was a lot of fun last year. I think it'll be more fun this year with more people. And I will also be in the merchandise room this year, signing and selling copies of the Sheik biography, Blood and Fire, the unbelievable real-life story of wrestling's original Sheik. So if you'd like to come down and have a chat and maybe buy a copy of the book, I look forward to seeing you in Vegas at CAC a little bit later this month. And of course, if you've been living under a rock, maybe you don't know about this yet, but this is your reminder, if you haven't already, to check out the Wrestling News, the newest and hottest project from the Arcadian Vanguard Network. It is, as we've said, a daily morning wrestling newscast done in a serious and professional way. No bias, as we say, no clickbait. Just the wrestling news. There's no paywall. So we encourage you to check it out. It's at thewrestlingnews.com. And it's also a podcast, so you can find it wherever you you find um, your wrestling podcast. It's also on YouTube. So if you go to the Arcadian Vanguard YouTube page, you'll see it there. I'm the news editor, so uh, I'm, I'm very proud to be a part of this project, along with Brian Last, Mike Sempervivi, Lou Kippelman, Jace Nakarado, the whole team. So I encourage you to, to check it out. It's really well worth your time. And then let me know what you think about it. Um, so having said all that, without further ado, I want to take you to this talk that I did with Tom Buchanan. Uh, Tom, for those of you that know about him, he's got a lot of great stories from his 16 years in WWE. He's got a very unique perspective because he wasn't a huge wrestling fan. He was a professional photographer who got pulled into this wrestling world, this WWF world, and really became a trusted part of it for a long time. So uh, Tom's been going through a lot of his old memorabilia and stuff recently, getting a little nostalgic on social media. So I decided to have him on the show and, and talk about his time there working for the company in those glory days of the 80s and 90s. So um, I hope you enjoy this conversation, and I'm going to take you to it right now. Okay, so this week on Shut Up and Wrestle, I'm going to be bringing another in the series that I've been doing on some former WWE employees, some people that worked either in television or in corporate, and people in, in some cases that I worked with or in some cases did not. And in this case, I have somebody here who, uh, for readers of WWF magazine and other WWF publications, uh, you you definitely knew the name because you saw it in every masthead uh, for years and years. He was, I believe it is for 15 or 16 years, a photographer at WWF. And for a large portion of that time, the chief of photography at WWF, I'm talking about Tom Buchanan. Hi, Brian. How you doing? I'm okay, Tom. How are you? Thanks so much, for, uh, as I said before we started, for giving me the time to do this. I do appreciate it. Uh, and I, I, I think it's really great to talk to people like you who, uh, you know, a, a lot of fans may not really fully understand how much work went into what was going on behind the scenes. So I like to talk to behind the scenes people. Sure. And I know I remember uh, before I was kind of saying that uh, you started, I believe, in 85 and you were there till 2001, right? Correct. Yeah. 
And I started in 2000 and I was there till 2007. So there was just a very tiny overlap of our time there. But because I worked on the magazine, um, I was very much aware of you and your contributions. And I already knew knew your name again because I'd been a reader of the magazine. Yeah, um, I was in the office every once in a while. So I popped through and I had a sense of where everybody was there. But the office wasn't my home. The road was my home. At least I wanted the road to be my home. <laughs> and I was getting sucked more and more into the office as a crew. Yeah, I, I do remember that, actually. I remember that you, you weren't thrilled with having to spend time in the office. And um, it, <laughs> no, because I remember you would say it. You were very vocal about it <laughs> because because Barry, of course, you know, I've mentioned before Barry Werner, our our publisher. And and of course, you had a, you had to deal with a lot of other publishers before him. But I remember, you know, when Barry would wrangle you into those production meetings for the magazine and we'd all kind of brainstorm ideas. Um, it was definitely not the ideal place that you wanted to be. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, the magazine meetings weren't nearly as bad as the creative services meetings. Oh, God. Pretty far out there and pretty corporate. Uh, magazine was a lot less corporate than the creative services side. Yeah, but, you know, because I, I worked with both of those departments, too, because I was doing copy editing. So I was looking at a lot of their copy, but. Uh, when I mean, I, I know what you mean because I was there, but what do you mean when you say that creative services was more was a more corporate kind of a meeting? Um, they had very definite hierarchies. Uh, head of the table was Debbie Bonanzio, who was the director of the department. And then there were people around the table and then outside the table. And everybody had a, a pecking order. And there were uh excel type flow sheets and spreadsheets that listed every project that was going on and what the status was and oh my god it was nuts <laughs> magazine was a lot more free flow yeah you know when you describe it that way uh, that's true i mean our, our meetings we were a little bit more like a frat house or something our, our meetings were a little less organized i guess you could say yeah i wouldn't go frat house but <laughs> definitely they were less organized um they had a purpose uh, and the purpose was to create a magazine that was entertaining and fun. And the people that worked on that magazine, for the most part, I think almost exclusively, really enjoyed wrestling. So this wasn't like painful for them. Um, it, it was making something that the fans would like. Yeah, um, I found that too, that the department that I was in there, and I think I would also say it of, of .com as well, it seemed to be the most populated with people who actually enjoyed the product and and were interested in WWF and wrestling. Whereas you had, you, you definitely had a lot of departments there of people that were kind of holding their nose a little bit, you know? Yeah. There was even a point where Vince McMahon required everybody to watch two hours of wrestling a week and their supervisors were supposed to make sure they watched and question them on it <laughs> uh, because a lot of them didn't. <laughs> yeah. I, I remember the requirement. I think probably by the time I was there, it had, it had loosened up a little bit, but it was one of those things that it, it was it was spoken of as a requirement. Um, but I have to say, honestly, you know, I was a wrestling fan before I started working there. But when you're when all you're doing all day at work is is looking at wrestling, talking about wrestling, um, it, it got to the point where outside of work, I definitely wasn't watching it anymore. I mean, the only time we, we had a TV in the office, so we would watch stuff there, but really for the most of the time I worked there, the only time I watched it was when I was in the office. Yep. Yep. Um, there was a point where, uh, gosh, they were playing it in the company cafeteria. 
So it was on a continuous loop in there. And when we did pay-per-views, they broadcast them into the cafeteria. So people could come and kind of party a little bit, casual party, uh, to watch the shows. Now you you started, uh, I think if I if I have it right, I think wasn't your first night as a freelancer um, the first WrestleMania? Almost. Uh, I was hired to do WrestleMania. Uh, that was going to be my first night, but Steve Taylor, who was chief of photography at the time, wanted me to get my feet wet just to know what it was about, so I could kind of get my timing right for the show. Uh, so he sent me up to Toronto, to Maple Leaf Garden, um, and I shot that show about a week prior, I think. Oh, okay. I, I didn't realize that. It was just sort yeah. of like to make sure you were ready for the big show, basically. Yeah, so I at least knew what the action was like. Um, it, it was a bizarre flight. Uh, I didn't think there was actually going to be a ticket for me when I got to Syracuse Airport. And there was, and I made it up to Toronto, and I had no idea how to get to the venue uh, so Steve actually, the, the hotel we were using was the Howard Johnson's at the Toronto airport. So Steve told me, oh, just go to the lobby before the show and look for a wrestler and ask for a ride. I said, well, that's pretty absurd, isn't it? Yes. I had no idea who these people were. I had never watched wrestling. So I was pushing anybody to look big and asking, are you a wrestler? Can I have a ride? <laughs> um, yeah, it was that absurd. Um, eventually, I think I wound up taking a cab. And then Jack Tunney, who was running that show, gave me a ride back to the hotel afterwards. So that was my introduction. And then it was on down to Madison Square Garden for WrestleMania. And how long uh, did Steve also shoot that show with you, WrestleMania? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. How long had he been there before you got there? Um, let's see. I want to say he probably went down there in 82, 83. Right. Around that. Um, we were both working for a newspaper in Auburn, New York at the time. Um, there was a, a local show at the high school, and I was supposed to cover it, and I didn't want to. And Steve said he would cover it. So he and uh, a writer went out there and did a picture story about it. Vince McMahon saw it and hired him pretty much on the spot. He called him up and said, come on down here, and I want to hire you. So Steve made the difficult decision to leave life in Auburn, New York, head on down to Greenwich at the actually might even have been Providence at that point before we moved to Greenwich. And at, at one time, Steve basically was the whole department. It was Steve, right? The whole thing. He yeah. got it started. Cause I remember, uh, here, just hearing stories about basically he, he shot almost everything in the early years. I mean, I remember some of the talent that had been there a really long time, like, like even when, Hulk Hogan came back a little bit later on and he talked about how Steve was the guy. I mean, anytime you were doing publicity shots or all a lot of the famous promo shots that he did and stuff, it was Steve and it would always be just him and Steve and and there wouldn't really be a lot of other people kind of milling around. It was a much tighter kind of streamlined uh, system back then. Yep. Yeah, there wasn't much of a staff. Uh, so Steve got the whole thing going. As his workload picked up, he started using me as a freelancer to shoot more of the action so he could spend more time in the studio world. Um, so that was what was happening there. The other thing that was happening, the company was small at the time. So anybody that was there, um, pre-me and then continuing on through me, anybody that was there got thrown at anything that had to be done. So we all wore a whole lot of hats. As the company progressed through the 80s and 90s, um, 
little fiefdoms developed and departments developed and and that crossover just wasn't happening as much. I think it hurt the company. But early on, everybody did everything. Yeah, and of course, then when they went public and it, it really changed drastically because I know even when I started, it was right after they had gone public and I still felt even at that time that there was a certain amount of probably nothing close to what you're talking about in the 80s and early 90s, but there was a certain level still of cooperation where people were expected to do more than just what their job description was. But I think but that very quickly started to change when I got there and it just got more and more siloed and the department's not really having contact with each other. And, and from what I understand now, it's m much more like that than ever. It's There's a lot of separation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, back um, when you started there, I think uh, that was happening. The TV world, if you were out on the road, it was a different story. Um, you still had to do whatever you needed to do. Um, and if you were on the international tours, that was even more so because there was very few people there. So everybody had to, to lend an extra hand. This company grew, there were more people, and you just fell into your silo. It was uncomfortable at that point. I really liked the the ability to do anything. And being on the road, I, I know that was where you mainly wanted to be. Were you were they sending you every week out to TV or how how was that working? Yeah. Um so in the early years, we were doing three shows a night, uh, all year long. So we had three tours going all the time, and sometimes we were doing matinees. So we had a huge appetite for talent. So I'd be sent out to do five, six, seven, eight shows in a row um, and then come home, edit film, and back out on the road again. So I was hitting various tours. So I go from one tour to the next tour and then maybe hit the third tour and then come home and go out and do it again. Uh, so I was flying probably 150,000 miles a year, which is a lot. Um, there's a point where my personal doctor was in California. My dentist was down in Florida. I lived in Connecticut, but got mail at a post office in Pittsburgh International Airport. I can't even imagine how many miles you must have accumulated. <laughs> My God, you could have probably gotten a free trip to like Venus. <laughs> that, if that's in the WWF universe, yes, I could. <laughs> uh, wow. Because you those were your miles, right, to keep. They, yeah. Yeah, and I used them a lot for, for side trips and for uh, upgrades. Yeah. And when I left the company, I had a million frequent flyer miles in the bank. I just gave them all away, and I had enough. So I gave my miles away. That was 2001, and I have not been on a commercial airplane since. Wow. I read that, and I, I couldn't believe it. I, I In <laughs> one of your recent uh, posts on Facebook, I read that. I couldn't believe it. But, but then I stopped, and I thought, well, that kind of makes sense. I mean, you must be so sick of the inside of an airplane and an airport, I can imagine that you'd never want to go near it again. <laughs> yeah, the other thing that happened is I left just before September 11, and flying was a pain in the ass by that time. Um, a lot of congestion, unpleasant people, cost-cutting. It was miserable. And then September 11 just magnified that, and I think it's gotten worse and worse since. So I don't miss that at all. Um, I'd like to go back to the old days when it was more proper, and less crowded and friendlier. Yeah. Air, air flight has gotten really, really terrible. I mean, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I didn't I didn't fly anywhere near as often as you, especially not in the 80s and 90s. But I did several times. And yeah, I mean, it, it, it's night and day. It, it really yeah. is. It's a very unpleasant and, experience now. 
Yeah, and think about the talent. Um, recognizable people who are slogging through airports, uh, dealing with that all the time now. Uh, they have a tough job. That's hard. Right. Now, for you kind of being thrown out there on the road like that, what and you're, you know, especially in those days when it was so much more insulated and there wasn't a lot of staff, um, how just weird was that for you to see that world, you know, and, and and have to be all not just see it, but have to really be accepted into it? Because, I mean, I would go on the road maybe five or six times a year. It was nothing compared to, you know, so to that. But I mean, you had to really be accepted into it in order to really be able to do your job because you were out there so much. Yep. Yeah. But if you're there so much, they start to recognize you. It took a little while, uh, but that's how you get in. You just show up and you do your job over and over and over and you respect the talent and they respect you eventually. Yeah. And I, I know that, you know, for the most part, you know, obviously these are people who live and breathe wrestling. It's their life it, it, and and it's their profession. But for someone like you who really was not, it really wasn't your your interest. It was your job. Um, did they, did, did that cause any kind of, any of them to sort of, I don't know, not be comfortable around you or, or think that maybe you were, you were arrogant or you thought, or you didn't have respect for what they did. Did, did that ever become an issue? Um, I didn't ever feel it that way. Um, I, I was a photographer, I was a professional photographer and brought in for that skill set, uh, And I think that was respected. Uh, and I wanted to learn. Um, so as long as I was willing to listen and let them teach, uh, I, I think it worked out. Um, I got the, the little bit of ribbing here and there, a little bit of stress, but overall it worked out. And I know by the time I was there, Steve was in the office he he had an office in the tower he was um yeah. so i mean i think at that point he wasn't really shooting anything anymore was he oh he had given up the department entirely right um when we had a, a little boy sex scandal mm -hmm. with uh, terry garvin who was running wrestling operations uh terry left and steve moved into that position so he was running wrestling operations and the photography department for a couple of years and then he just couldn't do it all anymore. TV side of it in particular was growing dramatically. So he gave up photography, split his responsibilities between me as the picture generator, the shooter, and uh, an editor who would distribute, so generator and then distributor. That's the way his job got split. And he just did wrestling operations. Right. And when, when I started there, the people that were running the photo department on the corporate end were uh noah wilker and noel soper yep so they were responsible for distributing all the pictures we produced right uh, i was responsible for generating so if we produced an original picture it came from my world uh and then you would get it from them so that's the way we cleaved it and that was getting hard to manage for a while and then you also brought in rich frieda right at some point in the 90s as a freelancer yeah, so Rich came in and he became my, well, it actually started with uh, Jim Sully. Uh, he was a name from early 90s, probably. Uh, he was my first freelancer. And then Rich Frieda came in as a second, and then Jim left, and then I picked up David McLean as a third. Uh, and then David, I think, moved on. Um, Rich stuck with us, and then we picked up a few others. Yeah, Rich, Rich is still doing it. I still yeah, see him there. He is 
he is amazing. <laughs> he is a really good shooter and a really good person. And to survive this long at that company is unprecedented. I think part of it might be because, you know, I mean, you've talked about how they offered you a full-time spot a few times and you didn't want it. And then you finally took it. I, I know with Rich, he never took it. He's still freelance to this day. Yeah. Yeah. It's a way better position for him to be in. Um, they kind of suckered me into that job uh, in that I started as a freelancer while also working as a full-time professional news photographer for the event newspapers in Utica, New York. Freelance for World Wrestling outside. And it reached a point where I was doing, making as much freelancing for World Wrestling as I was in my regular job. Steve Taylor was at a point where he needed more help. Finally, he said, look, I need, I need to hire a second person. Either I hire you and you'll make double your money or I won't hire you and you'll lose all this freelance work because I'll have a staff person to do it. So either you make a lot more or you make a lot less. And I decided to go ahead and join WWF. Initially, just for a year, the philosophy was pick up skill set and take it back to the world of journalism. And I have to point out, actually, before I forget, that for people that don't know, um, you are the person that took that I mean, many well-known photos from WWF, but I mean, the the iconic shot of the full Pontiac Silver Dome, the one that they always use in, in, in historical packages and everything that you, you had to be, I don't know how you did it if you were hanging from the ceiling or something, but just that incredible shot from the nosebleed seats. You're the guy that, that made that shot. Yeah. Um, and so that shot wasn't literally hanging from the rafters. I'll get to that shot in a minute. Um, for that one, Steve asked me to go all the way up to the cheap seat, shoot the house from the worst seat in the, in the building, uh, and get the crowd excited. So I saw it from that angle. And then for the second part of the show, I was at ringside. So I felt it from the worst and the best. It was an amazing place to see that show, two places to see that show. Um, the, the hanging from the rafters there was legit. It was an inflatable dome. And at one point pre-show, they took us up on the roof and had us walk on this pressurized dome until we got to the middle. There, there were plugs in the roof. Uh, because it was held in by pressure, the air was blown up. And you could take this plug and just push it down and to the side and literally stick your head through this hole and you were suspended directly over the stage. It was crazy. And then bounce on the, the top of the building like it's a, a trampoline. It was fun. I remember going through um, the photo, you know, because I, I, I was one of the magazine editors. So I'd always be going through photography. And this is even pre before it had been digitized, going through all the contact sheets and things. And I remember coming across those shots of you and those guys just up on the roof and looking through the, the hole in the in the ceiling of the Silver Dome and everything. And I don't even think. I can't even remember actually seeing them anywhere. Did those pictures ever, ever appear anywhere? The ones from the roof? I don't think so. <laughs> um, I don't think so. Uh, there was a story about me in WWF magazine many years later that may have used it there. Maybe. That might have been when I came across it, actually. Yeah. I actually have that magazine here. Take a look. I've... Um... Hmm. Where is it? Where is it? Uh, I have, when I left World Wrestling, I had boxes and boxes and boxes of stuff, magazines and whatever. 
uh, and just put it all in my mom's basement for storage and then moved up to Vermont. So it all sat there for 20 years. Well, she's moving, so I've pulled all those boxes out. Hmm. For the last couple of weeks, I've been going through 20 years, 20-year-old material. And it's just been fascinating. And I can verify that because I have been watching with rapt attention. I have to tell you, it's it's amazing. I mean, uh, you know, the, the stuff that you have and the things that you kept, it's really great. I mean, I have a copy of every magazine that I worked on. But beyond that, you know, it, it's it. there's not a whole lot that I kept. Um, so but that's just incredible to, to, to be able to look back on on that long of a time there and especially so much time later. I mean, there's more time now that's passed since you left than even the entire time you were there combined. Yep, correct. That's wild. And of course, in, in your in your last year there is when you brought in. Um, John Giamundo, who everybody would come to know as Johnny Photo, uh-huh. yep. who would uh, he he just left the company a couple of months ago. And he was he so he was there for uh, about probably 20 years himself. Yep. Yeah. He outlasted me, which is amazing. Um, it's a really hard position to, to hold because you're working on the road and you're working in the office. So it's two different worlds. And when you're out on the road, it's more than two worlds because you've got the talent, you've got the fans, you've got the stage hands and the, the union kind of thing going on. Um, and in the office, you've got the creatives and you've got the, the corporates. And there. there are all these different worlds that you have to interact with. It's a hard place to survive. And did you feel a, a lot of, of pressure, you know, when to to produce and to really give them what they wanted? What kind of an environment was that like for you? Um, yeah, there was a crazy ton of, of pressure for that, particularly in the later years. Mm. So the philosophy of photography early on was to create a, an image data bank. Um, so it was an archive, really a royalty-free archive. The company would own all of these pictures and would use them in multiple applications. So we were primarily shooting generic photography, maybe 70%, 80% generic, and about 20 to 30% for original projects. Um, so there wasn't a tremendous set of direction to do this picture this way and that picture that way it was more or less generate as much content as we can we'll multi-purpose it once we get the office over time we hired more art directors we had more projects that had to be specialized so art directors were trying to each give new direction um, with the same limited amount of time so in the later years in the 90s we were doing more customized projects um, with more direct art production now, I know I remember John always talking about how when he'd be out there at ringside, let's say he would have Kevin Dunn in his headset. Um, did you have that a similar situation to that? Yeah, we actually started that probably mid middle of when I was there. Uh, I would guess late 80s, early 90s. Um, the issue was that they didn't want to see photographers at the ring. They didn't want to see their camera operators. So there was one particular shot, uh, we call it an up and in, where we had a crane near the entrance. And the crane would push up and into the ring. And if anybody was standing in front of the ring there, they'd stick out like a sore thumb. So Kerwin and Kerwin Silfies and Kevin Dunn, Kerwin was the director, Kevin the executive producer, uh, arranged to have us on headsets so they could call out, ready camera seven, take seven up and in. And at that point, we would duck so we weren't visible. Uh, 
the handhelds would do the same thing. So that's the reason why we got the headset. Uh, but then it became useful to the television side to use us as an extra set of hands at the ring. So we could cue talent if we really needed to do that. We could get signs. We could deal with security issues. Um, we could let uh, let the truck know what was happening when they couldn't see it on camera. So it was it was really useful to the truck to the, the TV side. And did they did they other than just like you mentioned the the kind of crane camera and, and staying out of the way there. Did they were there specific areas where they preferred you to be? Because I know this a little after you were gone, when they switched to HD television, they became even more strict because you could see so much detail now that you could never see before, and and they had to be they they really tried to make it as clean as they could. And I remember John saying how at that point he had to just stay in basically one he had to shoot from one spot at ringside almost the entire show so like if there was something happening on the other side of the ring he couldn't go there he had to just kind of hope that there was stuff going on where he happened to be i don't know if it was that restricted when you were there um it wasn't as tight but that was the goal um so i would often have rich free to shoot him as a second so we'd cover the two sides that way <laughs> We really looked at the ring as a stage mm. and the hard cameras were the front of house from the, the picture making standpoint. So all the action is directed to cam one and two, which are the hard cameras in this in the arena seats. Um, one, I think was the tight shot and two is a post to post kind of shot. So the action presents there and the photographers have to be on the side. You don't want anybody on the front of the ring between the cameras, which are the public and the talent so that's the way it was set up uh, and then we had another camera a high shot it would move from corner to corner and through the center way up on the top of the house again looking at it as a stage looking at it from the house from the stage right and also looking at it as a television show which i think you know which i've heard from so many people over the years and it's easy to forget because uh, very often it's thought of in terms of being a live event but it's the production of a television show. And so there's that thought of really trying to get it as 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 clean and uncluttered as you can for TV purposes, because I'm sure even when you started and I mean, I've you know, I've been a wrestling fan since I was a kid. So I and I remember watching in the in the 80s, even in the mid 80s, around the time you started, it was a lot more crowded around that ring. I mean, you, you would have just random people milling around and sometimes from a fan perspective, you didn't even always know what they all did. And you'd have, and I think yeah, I remember a time where the, the announcer's table would be flush against the ring apron itself. So I don't know. Yeah. If... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Very different back then. Um, a lot of that TV was shot at local shows. So we would have a TV show going all the time in, uh, Toronto, for example, or Boston, or Madison Square Garden, all those shows were taped. So they weren't that special. They were just house shows effectively right. on TV. Um, so there were local people that ran those shows, wrestling commissions, and you couldn't really clean it out. Uh, it was hard. So yeah, it was cluttered. It was it was moving to what it is. And I think Vince saw that and at every, every opportunity he progressed to where we are today. Um, his philosophy from the earliest days I worked there was that the stuff should happen uh, through, we called it FM freaking magic. There aren't camera people. There aren't sound techs. There aren't any of these people. We don't want to know they exist. We want the fans to be there without those interrupters. Um, so if you look at 
standard TV shows, when they end, there's a scroll of all the people who worked on the show. That didn't happen with our show, with the exception of some very early ones, uh, and TNT was a, an example of that. Uh, so there isn't a scroll of people that worked there because Vince didn't want us to be a part of that action. And I think with Saturday Night's main event, I think they did have the credits because that might have been a network thing where they, Correct. yeah, they yeah. they wanted it. Yeah, that might even have been a. I'm pretty sure that was a union job. So right. Probably a different setup there, and that was Dick Ebersol. Uh, so harder for Vince to win that fight. <laughs> right. Sometimes you have to know which which fights to pick, but but the credits thing, you know, that's a great point because now it's sort of become the industry standard, not just WWE. When you watch any kind of uh, of of wrestling produced on TV, there tends to not be closing credits, but before uh you know vince's approach to it um in on older wrestling tv broadcasts you typically would see credits so that really is a vince mcmahon kind of decision that that took root really in the whole industry Mm -hmm. yeah i would say that's true definitely a lot of of little things like that that he did that made his show special yeah Um, and the tv tapings like you said would be where you definitely have a lot more control, you know, where as opposed to say, like you're saying, where they'd have like MSG shows would be broadcast on the MSG network, or you'd have Philadelphia Spectrum shows on the Prism, you know, local cable network. Uh, I think there was probably a little less control as to from a TV point of view at shows like that. Yeah. And when you look at those shows, they were staffed by the local company rather, usually rather than World Wrestling. Um, so when you look at, uh, gosh, I don't know if Kevin Dunn was even part of WrestleMania 1. I know our camera operators were. They were Madison Square Garden camera operators for that show. Um, and then Vince said, no, I can't do this. I've got to have the same people shooting the show all the time. So he brought in his own freelancers for the future. Uh, and that allowed them to work a show, to know the talent, to know the movements, to know what the, the producer and executive producer and director wanted. And that would make all the shows much more similar. Yeah, and a, a kind of a uniformity of style, and and yeah. th- and that was another innovation too, because probably because a, a lot of wrestling companies couldn't afford it, they right. generally they generally didn't have their own production staff. A lot of times, and even in the early WWF stuff, a lot of times the it would be the the, the you know if they were in a TV studio, it might be the 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 staff of the TV studio or the network or whoever whoever you know happened to be running that building would be the ones that produce your tv for you and and uh i think i'm pretty sure somebody will correct me who hears this but i'm pretty sure that the wwf was might have been one of the first companies to do that to completely go in-house on their tv production Mm, i would say yes to to, at least to the degree that wwf did Uh, others may have tried it Um, when we launched our tv building in stanford that was the, the big step we had been using a studio down in Owings Mills, I think, in Maryland, uh, called Video One. So that's where TNT came from. It's where a lot of our other production came from. The folks that were working down there became our core freelancers early on, and some of them might even still be with the show. Now you've mentioned TNT a couple of times, so I have to I have to refer to it because for <laughs> a lot of fans, that is a I guess the best description is a guilty pleasure because it's something oh gosh, yeah. <laughs> that is 
in the so bad it's good category where where it's just it's a camp classic now i remember you know i know a lot of people at the time were you know wrestling purists or what have you were up in arms over it but but i i just find it just hilarious i just can't help but but laugh at the the complete just insanity of of that show yeah uh, we shot multiple dates all at once. So I think it was three weeks at a time, something along those lines. Uh, so all the talent would be shoved in there and the scripts would be run through and you just blast through these shows one after another, after another, after another. Um, often we were missing talents or things got changed. It, it was chaotic. Um, and that, that I think helped add to that feel. And you were, so you were doing still photography for those shows. Yeah, I did still on several of those shows. Not a lot. Steve Taylor did most of those. Uh, I did a few as a freelancer, and I think it was over by the time I came in full time. Right. The first time I met Vince McMahon was down there. Um, kind of an auspicious beginning where uh, we were in the studio doing whatever we were doing in the, on set, and I really needed to use the bathroom, so I ran out of the studio to do that. Uh, the one bathroom was used, so it was directed by Kevin Dunn, actually, to go into Vince's suit, Vince's dressing room and use his. So I went in and did my business, and as soon as I opened the door, there's Vince and Alfred, and they just stare at me. Uh, I'm in his bathroom in his dressing room, and I'm just some freelancer jabroni. Nothing was ever said about that afterwards, but that was that was my first meeting with Vince. Wow! And what was your relationship generally like with him over the years? How how much contact did you have? Um, well, not every day or anything, or even every week. But he certainly knew who I was, and I could speak to him when I needed to speak with him. And he knew how to grab me and speak to me when he needed to. Um, so we had a good working relationship. Uh, early on, of course, he was intimidating as hell. Tried, I tried to avoid him. In time, I became more comfortable uh, and was kind of one of the point people who would go to Vince with issues when others were afraid. There were there were there's a couple of stories I wanted to ask you about, and I and I have to apologize if it's stuff that you've spoken about in the past, but I just find it fascinating. Uh, one being, I remember hearing a story, and I think it had come to me secondhand uh, that you had told about shooting an Andre the Giant match where uh, I hope I have this right where basically Andre the Giant was on the house show circuit and he was basically losing a string of matches and of course he had almost never lost anything and they had him losing match after match after match to the ultimate warrior in in seconds in every building and I, I guess Andre's you know, one caveat would to agree to do that would be he didn't want any record of it. He didn't want any of it on TV or anything. And I guess you had made the mistake of shooting photography for one of those matches. I think I shot it. I'm not sure I did. I may have known better, uh, <laughs> but certainly I was at ringside and certainly Andre thought I shot it. Uh, so he came over to me and grabbed me by the neck, his fingers reaching behind my neck and almost touching and touching. He picked me up and thrashed me and then tossed me to the ground. Um, I was probably a freelancer at the time. I may have just been uh, on board as a full-timer. Um, he was big and he was angry. And I, I felt his wrath and learned the lesson right there. Um, and he was right, I think. Uh, it was a terrible match. His health was bad. Um, he couldn't really wrestle, and yet he had to help get this guy over. Uh, so the way the, the match went down, as I remember is he would, Andre would kind of poke his head under the ring, under the rope, 
uh, the timekeeper would hit the bell, Andre would pull out before ever really getting in the ring. And then he would get in the ring and be attacked instantly, not believing that the match had actually started. So it was bell, Andre in, bang, 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 it's over. And, and not only is it embarrassing for Andre, but he didn't want that finish to get to the next town or the next town or the next town. So he was legit in that concern. And, and you know, I mean, I'm not justifying what he did to you, but um, if it, it makes sense from his point of view because this was a guy who, and I think this would probably be about 89 or so, but this was yep. a guy who had been wrestling for about 15 to 20 years by that point. You could probably count the amount of times he lost on one hand. And 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 most of those were outside the WWF. They were in other territories that he'd gone to or before he got to the WWF. So I think the only loss he had ever had up to that point would have been um, Hulk Hogan beating him at WrestleMania on, in the WWF. And then all of a sudden they're they're saying to him, well, we want you to lose about 20 of these matches on the road to this guy in about 10 seconds, you know. So you could imagine that that was a big deal for him. Yeah, um, I, 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 he may have been willing to lose the matches and he probably didn't want to actually wrestle with Ultimate Warrior. Uh, so doing it in 10 seconds was the better option for him. Uh, and it wasn't done as an official, like a legit match. It was he puts his head under the rope, doesn't know that the bell is wrong, gets in just to do his like walk the ring, and that's when he gets attacked and knocked down. So he had a, a legit objection to the pan, to the fans. You know, I didn't really lose. This was a, a screw up. So that's the way they played that angle. I think I remember. Right, but and and obviously none of those matches were were done. Um, on tv they were strictly house shows yeah so when we shot pictures we were looking um for a bunch of different things uh we were looking for match action of course main talent against main talent or main talent against jobber but we were also looking for individual pictures of talent so often if the seats were empty or it was a match that i didn't or couldn't shoot we would put a longer lens on there and just shoot tight shots of one guy's face or the other guy's face, like uh, shoulder, head and shoulder kind of shots. Uh, you'll see those a lot as program covers, uh, sometimes as magazine covers. So I didn't have to shoot the whole action piece of it. I could shoot other ways too. Talent generally didn't know that. So Andre wouldn't have known what I was shooting. The other part of all that is that the area around the ring belongs to the talent. That's part of their stage. So they can do whatever they want to whoever they want there. It's their space. And it's my job to stay out of their way. And how often did you or did you ever find yourself in a situation where wrestlers in character, of course, not like the Andre thing, but in character would try to interact with you or intimidate you or, or sort of do a little bit with you? How often did that happen? Um, it was rare, uh, <laughs> but definitely it happened occasionally. Uh, and it was always fun. Um, I can think of uh, like my favorite story there would be uh, Macho Man Randy Savage, uh, where he was with Elizabeth. And the first time we did this was up in Toronto. So I'm a freelancer, and I'm supposed to get pictures of Elizabeth. That's my shot list. Uh, so I'm shooting a whole show, but I have to shoot Elizabeth. Uh, so I do that. Uh, I start shooting Elizabeth, and Randy is in the ring doing his match. And he stops his match and kind of points at me and says, don't you take her picture? 
like, okay, whatever. Um, I have to shoot Elizabeth. So he goes back to his match. I go back to shoot Elizabeth. At this point, he comes running over to the rope. Says, I told you, don't you take her picture. He's looking down at me and bouncing on the ropes. And I'm like, whoa, 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 this is nuts. And the crowd is going kind of bonkers a little bit. So I say, yeah, yeah, whatever. Okay. And I back off. And he goes back to his match. I go back to shooting Elizabeth. Well, he sees this and he comes running over to the ropes, jumps over the ropes onto the, the, the mat or the floor and starts chasing me around the ring. I go, running around the ring, jump over the barricade and hide behind a cop as this guy is yelling at me. Oh, I said, don't take her picture. I don't ever want to see you take her picture on the guy, whatever. Yeah. Terrifying, right? Yeah. I had no idea what was going on. And you didn't expect this at all. Hell no. Right. So <laughs> after the show, I go back and I find Jim, uh, Jack Tunney. I ask him if Randy was serious, like, what's going on there? He said, he's really possessive about Elizabeth. He was serious. You're in trouble. Well, I have to shoot him at the next town, and I'm terrified. So as I go back to the hotel, I'm looking around corners, like, I don't want to run into this guy through the airport, through the rental car place. Finally, I get to the next town, and I'm like, I got to settle this thing up with Randy. So I go into one of the locker rooms, and I find him, and I say, Randy, I was the photographer in Toronto. Was 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 there a pro- problem? And he looks at me. And he goes, "Photographer, Toronto, Toronto. Oh yeah, you were running fast. That was good." <laughs> and that's how I learned how wrestling was set up, how it worked. That's um, he needed a spot. He created that spot, and I played into it. There you go. That um, is we- fantastic. We did that a few more times after that. Um, I think we finally ended that, that run in Chicago. Mr. T was at ringside. So as I come spinning by, Mr. T stands up and thrusts his chest out at, at Randy, and Randy does a double, double stop and backs up. That's the story about how Mr. T saved my life. Oh, yeah. yeah. I remember when they briefly brought him back to TV, that was around 87 or so, a couple of years after Mania. Yeah, on that one, he might have just been there. Chicago was his home, I think. Ah, Um, okay. And he may just have been there as a fan because he was that kind of guy. That Um, is great. And of course... That's how that stuff happens. That's how things develop. And you have to just go with it. Like, I've talked to uh, people who were photographers, some uh, doing wrestling, and a couple times what they would tell me is they would get very nervous because... um, it was almost the opposite where they knew that the wrestler was in character. And so therefore they felt obliged to sell it and respond in the right way, because if they didn't, it would just destroy their character. Like if a wrestler is trying to be intimidating and you just laugh it off, like it's nothing because you know, the guy and you know, he's not serious. Well, that kind of uh, is not cool, you know? (laughs) Right. Right. So my favorite story in that regard, I was pay-per-view event. It was a hell in the cell. Um, I'm working inside the cell. We have a, a pretend cameraman there. So the action develops. The cameraman gets hit by one of the, the talents. He, the cameraman goes down. Um, and eventually, Megs are going to come out and get the cameraman to save his life, which means they have to open the cell door. And that's when the talent get out. That's the, the way this thing works. Mm-hmm. So I'm not supposed to appear on camera. Right? I'm supposed to just be disappearing in the background. So I'm doing my job. This cameraman gets hit. I'm photographing the guy, and on the other side of him, I see a TV camera, and the tally light comes on. It's a red light, which tells me that I'm in the background of this shot. 
well, my colleague has just been hit and he's hurt really badly. I, I can't pretend this didn't happen. I can't just take pictures, right? This poor guy needs help. So I see the tally light and turn outside the cell and scream something like, he's hurt, he's hurt, he's really hurt. Get help, get help. Uh, and it, they pick that up right away and it airs. Um, it happened to be a, a publication's group watching that in the cafeteria that night and they all cheered because Tom Buchanan was on TV. <laughs> uh, I had a still photographer outside. Yeah. Uh, and he saw me yell and thought I was serious. So he ran to the back uh, and tried to get Bruce Pritchard or whoever was in the gorilla position to get help out there. And they were ignoring him. He was really pissed about this. So eventually the pretend medics come out and they get him out and the, the talent goes up to the top of the, the cage and it's, it's all done. Um, and tonight, the freelancer approaches me and says, Tom, I'm really, really sorry. I uh, I tried to get help. They just they wouldn't do anything for you. I'd say, okay, what was supposed to happen? How was this supposed to finish? I said, well, they go on the top and blah, blah. Okay, how are they supposed to get out? I said, well, oh, my God. And he <laughs> suddenly realized that he had been worked. And it, it's the way it goes. Well, I have to admire your commitment to the business in that moment, Tom, that you, 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 you improvised and you sold it like a champ. So the first time we did a live Saturday night's main event or main event, um, we were all scared to death because this is live network TV. We had done pay-per-views, but we'd never done something live network TV. That was crazy stuff. Um, so Vince at the production meeting tried to put us at ease and he said, it's a line I'll never forget. He said, it's live TV. Nothing can go wrong. And what he meant was, if something happens, just go with it. Uh, like I did at that ring, at that cell match. Just go with it. That's what the public wants to see. They're standing behind us every step of the way. They want success. So just go with it, and it'll work. So I, I took that to heart, and whenever something like that happened, I just lived the moment. Which is great. I mean, that, that was the right advice. I mean, because it, it only adds to... The realism, if you're trying to put this over and really convince people and work people, I mean, it's not always going to be perfect. There are going to be imperfections, and it kind of makes it more convincing. Yeah, as long as as long as you know that that's what's happening in some way, shape, or form. Right. Um, there was a another story, uh, ECW invasion angle. Um, I want to say it was Hershey, someplace down there. Um, I think so. So the, there's this big thing going on uh, in the, the the industry where ECW is invading WWF. And we've got this show, and there's fear that ECW is really going to come, and their guys are going to try and get in our ring. And we don't want this to happen. So we've got this live show going. I'm working my corner of the ring, and Taz comes running up. Uh, he's ECW talent at the time, not WWF. He comes running up to try and jump over the ring. And I get in position and hold my arms out and just stop him, right? Uh, he's not coming in on my watch. So he tries arguing with me. He tries pushing a little bit. And finally, he takes his fist and just punches me in the face, like head from the top of the head down. Um, gives me a little bit of a shiner. I drop. He jumps over the barricade, jumps in the ring. Uh, and that's the spot. Unfortunately, this spot had been timed out perfectly. He was supposed to jump in, get in the ring, just before we went to commercial, we time out to commercial, and all we see is mayhem as Taz jumps in the ring. 
I held him up and he didn't get on air the way we wanted him to get on air because I didn't know that that was a, a job. That was a, a work. Well, that's amazing. So, so you thought this was legit and you were legitimately trying to prevent him from getting in the ring. Yeah, we all did. Um, so we go to commercial, um, Fonzie, his uh, manager guy or referee, I don't know what he was doing in ECW, who used to work for us, but he comes running and he jumps over the barricade. Now, Taz can punch me in the face, and I, I'm going to lose on that match. Fonzie, mm, no. Tom Buchanan is going to go over on that one. <laughs> so I get him down, and I'm like, boots to him and all, and Kevin Dunn comes running out and pulls me off and tells me this is, this is a work. Uh, and then he reams me out for messing up his shot. So I fight back a little bit on that. We're at bloggerheads, and a few days later, maybe the next day, cooler heads prevail, and we're able to talk about how we really need to be smooth about the next case. That Kevin can't tell me not to do that if he expects me to do that at every show. So he apologized and promised he would never do that to me again, and he never did. Right, because, I mean, honestly, what if it was the reverse? What if it really was some kind of... Yeah. unexpected thing some some nut job and you're thinking well this must be part of the show and you step aside yeah yeah um and those nut jobs did come in and i did pull them down not a lot but certainly more than occasionally um, right uh, there was another one of those in gosh i want to say chicago no it was rochester new york where we had a match that um one of the talent was going to throw fire at somebody and it was a really dangerous spot. So pre-show, there's this lady sitting right at ringside. She's in the line of literal fire. And she's got a baby, a little infant on her lap. And I can't let her sit there, right? Because she might get hurt and her baby might get hurt. This is serious. So I find Vince McMahon and tell him what's going on. Uh, and she won't move. What should I do? Should I smarten her up? And he said, yeah, smarten her up get her out of there so i did and she refused to move she just nope i paid for the seat i'm sitting in the seat this is mine and she wouldn't take move for an answer so we had to let her sit there for most of the show um i got an usher involved and told him when this spot was going to happen and he had to go pull her out to talk to another usher just prior to that spot so she wouldn't be sitting there um so and so kind of yeah, that's the kind of thing that we would have to do. And it successfully got her out of the way and, and saved her, her child from potential harm. Jeez. So the fire spot was going to happen outside the ring then? Uh, on the inside the barricades, but outside the ring. Right, right. Like near where the fans were all sitting. Wow. Yeah. I don't think I'd ever heard that one. I wonder who that was. Yeah, yeah. Do you remember who it was? No. Um, no, nah, I remember it was Rochester. Uh trying to think of who threw fire i know steamboat for a while was doing the spitting fire gimmick yeah it wasn't bad at all this was uh in a match it was like a you, know, you throw baby powder to blind somebody right i think it was that sort of a spot like a flash paper kind of thing yeah yeah something like that so the other story that i have to ask you to to tell before i run out of time definitely i'm very conscious of your time tom but the story that one of the stories i love that you tell has to do with uh, Bret Hart and the Ultimate Warrior and George the Animal Steel. You know the story I'm talking about. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's horrible. Um, so we're in West Palm Beach, Florida. 
Bret Hart is being elevated to the top of the card, um, but he he doesn't interact with the fans as well as Vince wants him to. So Bret is asked to please be more um, for, not forthright, more out there with the fans. Right. So I'm outside the arena. It's a matinee show. And I see Brett come in, and there are all these fans out there. So Brett puts his bag down and goes to meet the fans, and he's smiling, and he's high-fiving, and he's doing everything they want him to do. So he goes in the ring, and I find Jim Myers, George the Animal Steel, who was the uh, agent that night, and ask him to please put this in the agent's report so Vince knows that Bret Hart is doing what he's been asked to do, and he's doing it really well. Uh, Jim Myers says, yeah, but all of our talent do that. I say, no. When Warrior came in, he just dropped his head, sulked on by the fans, and didn't interact at all. So this isn't like normal. Bret Hart is really making the effort. I want him to get noticed for it. So Jim Myers talks with Bret, and then later talks with Warrior. Uh, next show is that night in uh, Orlando. And Warrior goes on a rampage. Where's Buchanan? Where's that fucking Buchanan? He's throwing chairs. He's knocking over tables. He did some damage to a wall, I'm told. Um, trying to kill me, looking to kill me, he said. Uh, I wasn't there. Uh, I couldn't do a double shot because I had to light both. And then I couldn't light two towns in the same day. So I was saved. Uh, turns out that was the last day that Warrior ever worked for the company. Oh, uh, he had failed a drug test. Uh, so this was it for him. So he was probably really upset about that. He was loaded with steroids. Um, so I had nothing to do with him leaving the company. But from a other talent perspective, you see Warrior going on the warpath, threatening to kill Buchanan, throwing chairs, and then the next day he's gone. Uh, Tom Buchanan gets the credit for a bouncing Warrior. It didn't happen, of course, but it was a wonderful rumor, and I was happy to take credit. That's amazing. So, so you were one of the only guys to go over on the Ultimate Warrior. <laughs> not, <laughs> I never thought of it that. Not way. even Hulk Hogan did that, Tom. <laughs> well, at least in Rumorland, I went over on the Warrior, <laughs> and I'll take that credit. Now, I have to ask when with with George Steele, Jim Myers. Now, when he went to Warrior, was he going to Warrior to admonish him, or was he going to Warrior to say, hey, you're not going to believe what this Buchanan is saying about you? No, he was he was going to admonish him, to ask him to please be more professional and work with the fans. Um, and Warrior, who, who said that? Where did you hear that from? And Myers told him. Um, Jim Myers found me later on, a couple of days later, and told me what had happened. I had already heard it from others. He said, Tom, I'm real sorry. Um, he asked me, and I had to be honest. I had to tell him. Um, and that was Jim Myers from my perspective. He, he was honest and he was forthright and direct and he wouldn't hold stuff back from me. So it was consistent with his character to, to tell warrior where he heard this. That had never been my intent. Uh, it, the intent was to put, uh, Bret Hart over, not to bury warrior. And uh, I understand warrior, that. Yeah. Yeah. But warrior needed to, to hear that as well. Right. But, you know, I mean, when I hear this story, I just I can't help but thinking I understand the honesty part of it. But you would think also there's the practical side to avoid a situation like what happened to you. You know, discretion might be recommended to just say, look, I'm not going to tell you that I'm going to I this I want this person to be protected. You, you know what I mean? Yeah, oh, I know exactly what you mean. <laughs> um, because and, and... That, otherwise people will be afraid to speak up like you did. Yeah, it didn't it didn't scare me. 
um, I continue to speak up. Uh, I, I like Jim Myers a lot. Uh, he taught me probably more than I, anybody else about the business. Uh, and he, wonderful person. And he was there for a lot longer than I think most fans realize because when they stopped seeing him on TV, which would have been about 88 or so, they thought that was it for him. But he was still there for years after that, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah. He was backstage agent. I thought one of the best. Um, certainly one that, that helped me more than most. Uh, yeah, so he was always there. And he was a great storyteller who would help, especially the younger talent, figure out how to tell their story. Yeah, and he was in a great position, too, because not only was he a veteran, you know, because a lot of the agents were veterans, of course, but yeah. he had specifically worked for the McMahon family in particular for many years, even before uh, when, you know, when Vince's father was in charge, he was still there. So he had a lot of um, of, of experience even working for that particular outfit. Yeah, and he was a, a, a good, interesting character, and he knew how to develop character. And anybody that knew wrestling at that time knew, knew his Jersey Animal Steel character and recognized what he had done. So that accomplishment makes it easier to talk to the other boys about, about their characters. You know, that's a really great point because a lot of times I would, and I don't, I'm not, I don't want to name any names because I don't like to, you know, I'm not going to try to bury anybody, but a lot of times with agents or producers, whatever you want to call him, the, 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 um, a lot of times they are people who didn't always have the greatest in-ring career they maybe they weren't the biggest stars they they didn't have the greatest characters and in fact that's part of the reason why they're agents because they kind of need the money but but george but george Steele was one of those guys who could say to who could look these talents in the eye and say i have i've been in the main event i've been the top star i know what i'm talking about i had a I had a character that got over huge for years and years I know what I'm talking about. I wasn't just some lower mid-card performer. Yeah, he was also um, a, a teacher. Like he, That was his career before he was a wrestler. Um, that was his career as a wrestler. Uh, he wanted to teach, and that's why he was an agent. I don't think it was just to get money. I think it was he really wanted to build the next round of talent, uh, and he did that. And I think by that point, he had retired from, from teaching, hadn't he? Yeah. Because oh, yeah. I know for, for years... Um, he would only wrestle when school was out. <laughs> he yeah. he would wrestle like over the summers and things. And I think when he retired, it was from teaching. It was right around the point when Vince was really going national and trying to lock all the talent down. And, and he, he had George full time at that point. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right about that. Um, I don't remember the specifics there, but I think you're right. And as an agent, he was full time. He was out there almost all the time. Yeah. I he He left just before I got there. And so I didn't, I never really got to interact with him, but I did, ironically, I, I got to know him a little bit in later years on through Facebook because we knew a lot of the same people. Okay. Very good. He's, uh, I think the only reference that I still have on uh, LinkedIn. So I've got a legit LinkedIn reference uh, from Jersey. I don't see Oh, I have to look that up and, and, and find it now. I didn't realize that. Tom, uh, I could go on and on with you, but this has been great. I, I, I love hearing exactly these kind of stories because the, they come from places that not every fan expects. And I feel like if we don't have conversations like this, the stories just disappear. So, I mean, thank you for doing this. Thanks for having me. Um, I always enjoyed my time working and I really appreciated the fans. So it's always nice now to say, you know, this is how it happened. And 
thank you guys for being there. Thank you, Tom. That's great. Right. There you have it, folks. My conversation with Tom Buchanan. And I hope that you all enjoyed more of those behind-the-scenes WWE stories that I've been working hard to bring to the show and to keep as a part of uh, Shut Up and Wrestle the ongoing uh, um, appearance of members of the WWE corporate team that that maybe we often don't think about or we don't recognize or, or understand or even know about their achievements, their memories, their stories, and we're going to continue to share them on this show. But uh, So uh, let me run down some of the guests we have coming, who will include one of those people as well. But next week, next week's episode, I will have the president of the International Professional Wrestling Hall of Fame, Seth Turner, who I've known now for a couple of years through my participation with the Hall of Fame. And I just went to the second official induction weekend in Albany a few weeks ago. So Seth was kind enough to talk to me. That conversation will be next week's episode, episode 34. Also in the weeks to come, another uh, fellow WWE employee, Keith Caramello, who um, if you know of him, you may know of him from his belt designs he designed the undisputed wwe championship he designed the wwe u.s title belt that was in use for a very long time and he's got a lot of other great experiences and stories we'll be having him uh sheldon goldberg longtime professional wrestling promoter in the northeast in the new england area he will be a guest in the weeks to come and i'm also super excited for the first time to mention that I have coming to Shut Up and Wrestle, none other than your favorite wrestler that you have never actually seen wrestle, Twitter sensation and AEW interviewer, RJ City. That's right. You do not want to miss this one. It will have all of the Golden Girls, uh, Van Johnson, and Yule Brenner uh, references that you can possibly stand in a pro wrestling podcast, RJ City coming to shut up and wrestle in the weeks to come. I will let you know when that is going to officially be happening. Uh, while we're at it, while we're talking about this, why don't we talk about how you can find shut up and wrestle? Because as you probably know, we have our website, suawpod.com. You can also find Shut Up and Wrestle wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Podcast Addict, the usual places you'll find it. I also want to ask you, if you haven't already, to join the Shut Up and Wrestle Facebook group. Shut Up and Wrestle with Brian R. Solomon. If you look that up, you can join the group. You can join our conversation. There's lots of interesting discussions we have on there related to the material on the show and the guests on the show. So it's something you really don't want to miss. It kind of adds to the experience. So I encourage you to join. Uh, if you're interested in buying a copy of my book, Blood and Fire, I encourage you to go to Amazon.com where you can get copies in print. You can get digital copies. You can even get an audio copy read by yours truly. If that's your thing, I encourage you to go to Amazon. Um, also, as I mentioned at the top of the show, The Wrestling News, our newest pro project. Check it out at TheWrestlingNews.com. Give it a listen, 10 minutes of your time each morning. Let us know what you think. The magazines that I write for, if you're looking to find those, Pro Wrestling Illustrated, you can get at pwi-online.com. Inside the Ropes Magazine, you can get at insidetheropesmagazine.com. 
Wrestle.com. Shut Up and Wrestle is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. And as always, this has been Brian R. Solomon asking you to keep those cards and letters coming in and reminding you that if you can't be with the one you love, love the one you with. So long, wrestling fans. Thank you,